0: While walking out church, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we're gonna be at this morning. I really want to encourage you to and bring a hard copy of God's word with you. If you don't have one, we have them on the back table, and that's our gift to you if, if you don't own one. And you know, it's just it's such a good habit for us to get into holding God's word, reading God's word, seeing God's word seeing it in context, kind of filling it in our hands, just seeing what it's about, because it's, man, it is the lifeblood of everything that we do, and it's vital for us. And so I just want to really encourage you to do that. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but it's different than a device. You know, there's a lot of different things you do on these things. You know, reading the Bible is one, but there's also a lot of other things that can kind of create uh, distractions. So, you know, the only thing you do in this is read God's Word, you know, and make marks on it that are unique to you, and you put notes in there that are unique to you, and so it's just a really cool thing, so I want to encourage you to do that, but Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 18, so if you can turn there and get there, and we'll read it together here shortly. Pray and ask God to speak to us as we kind of enter into, last Sunday was the first Sunday technically of the Lenten season, and you know, if you didn't grow up in a... Catholic Church or something, or Presbyterian Church, you probably haven't heard that word used a whole lot, but, you know, the Lenten season is about repentance, the Lenten season is about refocus and redemption and all these things, and so, you know, kind of uh, giving up something of ourselves to gain something greater than we could ever have on our own, and so that's what this season is about, and so we're going to start a series called Fix My Sight, and we're going to start here and let uh, Dr. Luke kind of bring us into this season as we start. So Luke chapter 18, we're going to read down to verse 28 together. So let's read that together. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord and saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 24, it says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? a reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he whom it is written. Behold, I send a messenger, my messenger, before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28, and I tell you, Among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. A lot to pack in there, but let's pray together and just ask God to speak to us. Father God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truths that you lay before us. God, in the midst of all the distress and the distraction of our week, Father God, I pray that we can come this morning and just lay ourselves before your feet. God, embracing your presence here with us. Lord, as broken people in desperate need of fixing, Father God, coming to you. Father, it doesn't matter where we've been, it doesn't matter where we are right now in the the scope of our lives in this very moment, we're in the place where we need to be and that is in your presence. Father God, begin fixing our sight. Help us to see you. Help us to see what it is you do and what you plan to do with us in our lives. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' holy name. Like I said this morning, we start a series called "Fix My Sight," and and what I hope that this series can be as we navigate through the Lenten season, which started last Sunday and kind, or the first Sunday of Lent was last Sunday, and then kind of carries through to Easter, where we kind of start this journey of reconnection, of refocus on who God is and what He's done and what He is doing in our lives through Christ Jesus. And so this morning we begin that, and you know. As we navigate kind of distraction and discouragement like we talked about, I, I really feel like, you know, and, and you know, I, I grew up in a Catholic church, kind of attended a Baptist church and did some ministry there. And, you know, the, there's different focuses on different things. And some people are really kind of hands off and push back against church history and all those things, because whether it's too traditional or it's too Catholic, if you're not a Catholic, you know, whatever it might be. I personally believe that kind of having these seasons, you know, a, a lot of times we don't focus on the, the, the church calendar, but having these seasons built in where you kind of step back and you kind of uh, take a specific thing and you kind of lean into that. And for this, the Lent season leading up to Easter, you know, it's, it's such a it's such an important moment for us because it's pointing us to remember some things and some things that we need to remember. We need to remember the place at which God is working on us. We need to remember our need. We need to remember our sin. We need to remember our journey in repentance and of redemption and all those things that we find in Christ Jesus. And so this Lenten season kind of uh, brings that about in us. And so in this passage, you know, there's something very unique in this passage. And I kind of wrestled back and forth on how we would navigate this passage, but kind of looking at it through the lens of, of losing sight of where we're going, of what Christ has been doing and what Christ has done. You know, I I really believe what we see here. It is, is more applicable than we may realize. You know, maybe you've read this. I, I, most of you, if you've been in church long enough, you know who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist was kind of that guy that came in before Jesus. He's, he's Jesus' relative. He comes in and he's paving the way for who Jesus is. He's telling people about Jesus. And then Jesus comes and John kind of passes the torch to him. And then John is actually uh, beheaded not long after Jesus' ministry begins. And so like all these things happen. But John was so such a valuable person in the story because the Old Testament kind of prophesied about the, come, the coming of uh, John the Baptist. I mean, we read it down here uh, near uh, in verse 27, kind of the Old Testament prophecy that came uh, from Malachi. It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and who, who will prepare your way before you? And so this is talking about John the Baptist. And so he's a vital element of this story, you know, and, and he was kind of the, the crazy uncle. I mean, he lived in the wilderness. He, uh, he ate bugs, you know, like all those things you heard in, your, in, you know, in the stories as, as kids, you know, and all that. But there's something that happens in this story that's very unique. And like I said, I think it's very applicable for us. Because in many ways, the experience that John has is an experience that I believe all of us either have had, are having, or may have at some point in our near future because what's happening right here whenever we read these passages in John 7:17 7, is that uh, I mean sorry in Luke 7 7:17 uh, 7, down is that John is in prison you know, in Luke chapter 3, we see where King, uh, the, the King Herod, he puts, he puts John in prison because of all the things that he's doing and because of the message that he's preaching and all these things. So, so in this moment, John is in prison. And so he's kind of shut off from all the things that are going on as far as the faith goes. And so these disciples come to him and they're communicating all these things that Jesus is doing. And so then we pick up in in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, and John says to his disciples, after he's heard all these things, he says, go to the Lord and ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And so what's happening here is this, and I want to be very clear, and we'll kind of talk about this as we move forward. This is not John having a moment of unbelief, okay? The prophet John is not having a moment of unbelief. But imagine even in your own lives and what's happening here with John, he's he's in prison, probably not being treated well. I mean, I imagine that prisons in this day and age uh, were not, uh, you know, anything like the prisons that our inmates settle into these days. But John's in prison. He's shut off from the experiential moments that are happening in the faith around him. These things that really have drove him his whole life. He's not seeing these things. He's not being around those things. He's not being able to interact with Jesus the way he was previously. I mean, he baptized Jesus before this. You know, so there's all these things that he was doing, that he's used to doing, that now he's being shut off from. So imagine, let's put ourselves there, imagine the stress. Imagine the fear. Imagine even some of the doubts that may be going through John's mind, because what I hope that we can see and understand, you know, as he's in prison, it's stressful, it's difficult circumstances. And in a lot of ways, it's probably disorienting. And so we could ask ourselves, how is it, how is it that someone that not only is is aware that the Bible, that the text, the, the, uh, the, the book of the law prophesied about his coming, that he interacted with Jesus, baptized Jesus, is related to Jesus, has heard all these things. How could someone like that come to a point where he still has to ask the question, are you the one who is to come or shall we be looking for another? You know, I don't know about you, but if you've gone through life long enough, then you've entered into these seasons of your life where you're a little disoriented, right? Where you feel yourself asking questions about things that you know you know the answer to. You know, and, and so what's happening is, is this, this disorienting moment is happening in, happening in John's life. And, you know, when we think about this in kind of a more practical way, you know, when you think about when you're tired... When you're tired, physically exhausted, you've been at work all day, maybe you're up really late, maybe you work nights, you're trying to get up the day and do some things. And you're, I mean, I don't, my wife can attest to this. If I drive when I'm tired, it is not a safe experience for anybody. You know, the bumps are really lifesavers. The, 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 the median things and then the things on the side of the road, when they inputted that, they, they knew they were saving my life. In my family's life when, when they installed those things on the street. Uh, because when you're tired it affects your driving, right? It affects your responsiveness, it affects the way you see things and how you process information. You know when you're running and you're fatigued and you're exhausted, you know I don't know if you've ever done this but you know maybe if you've ran track or some kind of distance running or something like that or you're just doing it for for your health. When you're running, have you ever experienced that where it's like you kind of get tunnel vision, right? You kind of only see what's in front of It's like you're so tired, so fatigued, so exhausted. You literally can only focus on the lines or on the road in front of you. You kind of forget everything else that's going on around you. You know, or when you're emotionally wrecked, you know, you've had some type of significant loss in your life. You know, when you're emotional, you know, and your eyes are filled with tears or, or you're just emotionally just unstable. You know, it's, you're, you have trouble focusing You're disoriented emotionally, physically, mentally, all those things that happen. And even in that, you begin to ask questions about things that you know the answer to. What has happened right here is that John has lost sight. He's he's lost his focus on all that he's known because of the stresses that are around him. And so there's a couple of things this morning that I hope that we can find some application as we move through this series and, and are asking and praying this prayer together. Lord, fix our sight because every single one of us in some way, shape or form need to be refocused. Right. We need we need that that our sight fixed. You know, and the picture that I have for this, I kind of I liked it because it was like a, a, a blurry background, whether, you know, you see the silhouette of someone standing there. But. You can't make out the details of it. And so I feel like a lot of us, maybe in our faith, it's like there's a blurry silhouette of what our faith is in front of us and we see it and we know it, but we're missing the details. We're missing the, the, the intentions. We're missing the beauty of what's really there because our, we've lost sight of the things that we've known at some point in our lives. And so there's a couple of things that I want us to see and I believe the text kind of speaks to us about. As we see where John is and we take this experience to kind of reorient ourselves, fix our sight. Like this this would be our prayer. Lord, fix my sight. Help me to see what it is you have for me. Because I believe the first thing that we need to understand and the first thing that we need to acknowledge is the difference between doubt and unbelief. Because for a lot of you here, you know, a lot of us... Our faith is not our problem. You know, we have some instance of faith or belief in who God is. And maybe some have some unbelief. And depending on the experience you've had in in church or in your faith or in, in discipleship, whatever it might be, doubt has always been presented as a very, very, very negative thing. But what I, I hope that we can see as we begin this morning is the difference between doubt and unbelief. And so we pick up in verse 19 where John says, he says, calling to two of his disciples to, to him, he sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for a number? Remember, uh, another? Remember, this is the same man who is a relative of Jesus's, who grew up around Jesus, who baptized Jesus, who, who he has been hearing about and been reported to about all the things that Jesus has done. You know, John is used to the wilderness and now he's confined to this prison. And so what we see is we see a sense of doubt settle into John the Baptist in this moment. You know, and the thing that we have to understand is even some of the best leaders in the Bible had moments of doubt. You know, we see uh, uh, Moses, he was ready to quit in Numbers 11. You know, we see Elijah in 1 King, uh, Kings 19. We see Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20 verses 7 through 9 you know even paul you know who we would put up on the pedestal of like great disciples and apostles of Jesus Christ even paul felt and knew these places of pressure and despair to points that felt like there was no end, that there was no uh, uh, moving beyond. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 9, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Like, do you hear the doubt? Do you hear the struggle in Paul's writing here? As He says, listen, we were stressed and pressured to the point that we questioned life itself. He said, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. I mean, that's low, right? He says this. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know, and this is, this is where as we move into these things, the way that, and, and if I had to subtitle this anything this morning, it would be this, dealing with doubt. Because the reality is doubt is something that will find itself into our lives one way or the other. No matter the level of our faith. We just read off several men of faith who we would put up there on the the top tiers of men and women of faith. And they had moments of doubt. They had moments where they lost sight off of where they were going and what they were doing. And the thing about it is we need to understand this. There is a distinguishing factor between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says this. Doubt says, I can't believe. Unbelief says, I won't believe. Doubt is honesty, where unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light, and unbelief is being content with darkness. See, there's a difference. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a question of the mind, where unbelief is an action of the will. Where doubt in my mind says I'm struggling to understand, where unbelief says I don't want to understand. See, there's a difference. And I read this quote this week by Oswald Chambers. He says this, he says, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. He says it may be a sign that he is thinking it may be a sign that he is thinking. And listen, and a lot of times in the church, because the church is, it wants to be so far removed from, from anything of the world that, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but like we want to put faith and science on completely opposite ends of the spectrum when in reality those things collide together so beautifully. I have a science degree and it, as I was going through school, there was so much about that that I said, this is more evidence about who God is than anything else I feel like I could have gotten into because of the intricacy of how our world and how our bodies work, that science and faith are not in competition against each other, but those things actually reinforce each other. And that in reality, if there's certain aspects of the Bible, you can read that the Bible was way ahead of science. And if anything, science is just always catching up with what God's word has already said. You know, there are passages in Psalms that talk about the blood being the life source of the body. And listen, it wouldn't be too long after that, that human beings, we, science would figure that out, you know. And so there's so much that we need to understand that, that doubt, even though it's not ideal. Like we want to be able to live in spaces and places where we are confident in who God is and what he's doing. But the reality is because of the brokenness of mankind, we are going to find ourselves at places of doubt. The place that we want to fight against is the places of unbelief because those are actions of the will. Doubt is a matter of the mind. We cannot understand what God is doing or why he is doing it. Unbelief is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe God's word and obey what he tells us to do. And so this brings me to a next point. I debated on whether to even go into this or not, but I feel like it plays into this a little bit because it's some of the most applicable things for us currently in our day and age. You know, there is a trend among people who call themselves Christian that is going on right now. And that trend is something called deconstruction. I don't know if you've heard of this or if you've seen this, but basically what this is, is this is, you know, on the big scale, it's leaders, authors, worship leaders, people that that we've seen songs that they've written. You've probably read books that they've written. You've probably heard messages that they preached. Well, what is happening is they're going through this process called deconstruction. And what this deconstruction process is leading them to is to places where they do not believe anymore that the God that they once believed exists. And what the, the, the question that they ask themselves, if you read anything about this deconstruction process that is happening right now, it's happening among not only leaders that have been around and been doing ministry for years and years and years and years, but it's also being encouraged among our youth, among the students, among the people in universities to deconstruct everything that you've ever been told. And ask yourself this question. And this is the question. If I don't have to believe Christianity, then why would I? If I don't have to, then why would I? And so that's the question that kind of instigates this process. But unfortunately, this process that is shrouded in doubt, this process isn't leading to the pursuit of answers. It's mostly leading people away from the faith entirely. Because of the problem between doubt and unbelief. And this is the, the balancing act that's happening. And so, so what are the reasons? You know, what are the reasons? Because I felt like it was important for us to talk about this since we're talking about fixing our sights, since we're talking about kind of this idea of where John is most definitely going through a moment of doubt, but how is his moment of doubt different from people in our day and age, maybe even people you've known that are going through a deconstruction process and moving away from the faith? And so the the thing that I believe that we needed to acknowledge is why, what are the reasons people are deconstructing their faith? This is important for us to understand. And and the Gospel Coalition actually has a great article on this and kind of went through this a little bit, but there are three things, three reasons why people are deconstructing their faith that is leading them away from the faith. The first thing is this, church hurt, church hurt. Now for us, we acknowledge all the time that this is a real thing, right? If you've been in church long enough, you've experienced church hurt in some way, shape, or form. Some sense of disappointment, some sense of of hurt from the church. And so for us, we need to acknowledge first and foremost that it is real. Church hurt is real. But what we need to also understand is that deconstruction or disbelief is a false cure for church hurt disbelief is a false cure for church hurt because what it does is it bypasses true healing. It bypasses true healing. And the thing that we need to know is that we don't need to ignore the church's problem to protect its reputation. And we talk about this all the time. I just said, it was either last week or the week before that I preached, that we are not afraid to acknowledge where the church fails because the church is run by broken people and it fails. But the cure for that is not to run away from the church. The cure for that is not to run away from the church. The solution to bad community isn't no community. The solution to bad community is to establish good community, right? Not to run away from it. God has given us something. It's faulty, but it is not a representation of who God is. Just because people are faulty and the church is faulty at times, it does not make our God faulty. But God has given these things into our hands. And He has asked us to, to, to deal with it and to do it. And you know what? We're not always great at that. So the first reason for this deconstruction process is church hurt. Is they begin to believe that because I've been hurt by the church, the church must be faulty. And so I don't need anything to do with the church. So I'm going to run away from the church. Like we said, that's not the cure. That's bypassing the true healing. The second thing is this poor teaching. Jesus spent Matthew 5 through 7 deconstructing bad teaching that the Jewish leaders had been teaching. And that's because, and to reconstruct truth because Jesus understood how dangerous bad teaching is for growth and development of true Christians. You know, and there's different ends of this. You know, there's the 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 the, the God is love that God do, that God would never do this, that God would never this, and then there's the other end. We know the other end that God is like this uh, sadistic ruler that reigns over us like dictators and that that sends down harsh judgment and that hates everyone that doesn't agree with him and that all. You know, so there's two different ends of that. And there's problems on both ends of it. And so for us, for people, we have to understand first and foremost that the things we say and the things we teach, you know, we we want it, man. It's just a bit, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, church isn't about the teaching. It's just about the community. It's about worshiping God and all these things. But we have to understand the things we teach are vital to how people worship God. The things we teach are vital about how people experience the Christian faith. When we talk about salvation, when we talk about true worship, when we talk about all these things, they are absolutely vital. So, poor teaching is the reason why many people are in any of these spaces of unbelief and deconstruction. And so, for us as Christians, we have got to see the value in the things that we teach. Second, the last thing is this. In all, in all honesty, I think this is the most, um, probably the most true reason for deconstruction, and it's the desire to sin. It's the desire to sin. Because listen, it's convenient timing when we live rebellious lives of simple, sinful pursuits and we find ourselves deconstructing our faith, especially the faith that we grow up in. You know, it's, it's convenient timing. Or even in the day and age we live in now, even with our students and things, I mean... It, we want to deconstruct our faith because it makes us feel better about the things that we want to do, right? The things that we know we shouldn't do. And so the way we enter into the things that we want to do is disproving the things that we were taught, right? We, want to, we, we don't want to believe that because if I don't believe that, then it makes everything I do here feel better. It makes me not feel as bad about it. And so what we see is this deconstruction it's, it's a poison, not a medicine. It supplements the sin that is killing us rather than healing us. And so these things are, are things that are feeding into this idea of unbelief and deconstruction where for us, and where I believe we learn from John is that the only true and eternal cure for these deeper wounds, whether it's church hurt, whether it's poor teaching, whether it's a desire to sin, the only true cure is Christ. And so the question for us is if we are in doubt, if we've been in doubt, if we're moving into doubt, or we're dealing with people who are having doubts, how are we dealing with doubt? Because I I believe that being at a place of doubt is not a terrible place for us to be. Because of this, I read this this week, says if a man fights his way through the doubts Through his doubts to the conviction that Christ is Lord, he has attained to a certainty that the man who unthinkingly accepts things can never reach. And so what is that telling us? That's telling us that the person who fights through doubt to find Christ has a more firm footing than the person who just believes by blind faith. Listen, the Christian faith was not set up for us to put our faith in something without even thinking about it. You know, that's the problem with a lot of how Christianity has presented itself, because it's presented itself in this place where you leave your mind at the door, you leave your thinking at the door, and you just embrace. You just accept. And so what that does is it does not require us to think about anything. And so then when we get to moments, and you know, this is where we enter into this space with maybe our children. You know, for us, that's when we have to be careful. We have to be very, very careful when we are communicating faith and salvation and belief to our kids because we never ever ever want to give them the indication that you need to just believe in this without thinking about it. Because that is not what God told us to do. That is not what Jesus told us to do. What did Jesus tell us to do? He said count the cost. He said know what you believe. He said understand it. Listen, God has told us that the way to know him is to know him to see him is to see him. He has not told us that everything that we believe is just by blind faith. Listen to Christ- and that's a lot of people's apprehension to Christianity is that you're just living this doing this thing by blind faith. Absolutely not. There is evidence. There's truths. There is proofs that God has given us that we can be confident in what we believe and how we believe it. And so what we have to understand is doubting is not the enemy, but it's the direction that our doubting brings us that can be the enemy to our lives. And so what happens? You know, the thing we need to know is doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but it only that his faith is small. What did Jesus say about small faith? What did he say about faith of a mustard seed? He said it can move mountains. So the problem is not about the doubt The problem is not even about the lack of faith if faith is there. But the problem is the process at which we deal with the doubt. The direction at which we go. Because listen, a lot of times, especially people in this deconstruction process, if we're honest with ourselves, and if they're honest with themselves, they're not finding answers because they don't want the answers they may find. You know, because the thing is this, and where I believe John gives us encouragement and where John gives us direction, is that when Jesus leads us in our doubting, this would be the second last thing this morning, when Jesus leads us in our doubting, we find the truth. In the process of our doubting, if we go to the source, we will find the answers. And so we can, we can say to John, John, you shouldn't have doubted. John, you shouldn't have wondered. John, you shouldn't have had these questions. Dude, you baptized Jesus. You saw, you experienced that moment with him. You heard about him. You grew up around him. You saw him as a kid teaching in the synagogue. Like you knew the things he was capable of doing and you still doubted. But just like you and me, we enter into spaces like John where we're afraid, where he's in prison, where he has been disconnected from the other community of faith that maybe he was involved in. And so the only, he he begins to think in his mind, you know, when you're, I can't imagine. And you know, a lot of us, I believe we find ourselves in prisons of isolation, right? Where we've disconnected ourselves from the faith so far that we begin going through our mind. Golly, do, do I believe that? Like, did that really happen? Does God really have this for me? Will God really do this for me? Can God really do this? You know, it kind of goes back to the Genesis, uh, you know, Genesis 2 situation, Genesis 3 where the serpent slithers in and he says, I mean, did God really say that? You know, and even in that sin, Adam and Eve didn't become any less God's children in that moment. But there were repercussions. There were ripple effects, obviously, that affected us for eternity. But even in that moment, God showed them mercy. But for us, we have to understand when Jesus leads our doubting, we will find the truth. And so if we... if, if. All the questioning of John and everything that he's did, the thing that we can say and the, 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 the thing that John does do right is he goes to the source. He tells them, he says, go and tell. And, and so when, when he sends them, he says, go to the Lord, ask the Lord these questions. What does he get? He gets answers. If we have doubts about who God is, what should we do? Go to God. If we have questions about what, what Jesus has required of us, of what Jesus wants to do, go to him. Seek him. Seek his revelation. Seek the community of faith that he's given us around us. Because if we go to Christ, if Christ leads us in our doubting, we will find the answers. John didn't pursue an unbelief, but he dealt with his doubt by pursuing the source. And what did Jesus do? Jesus sent him answers. But remember. If people aren't finding answers, typically they aren't looking because they don't want the answers they will find. Listen, it's so much easier for us to move away from the answers. To move away from those things that, because what they do is, if we know the truth, then those truths hold us accountable. If we know the truth, then those truths begin to lay out before us the path at which we should walk. But if we push away from the truth or so we don't seek those truths, Then we'll find our place at a point where the living on this end is more comfortable. Listen, if we go looking for Christ, even if we approach him with doubts, I have no question in my mind. If you have doubts today about your faith, about who Christ is, about what he's done or what he's doing. Even if we approach him with doubts, he will provide us with the vision to see and hear He will fix our sight to be aware about what he is doing. He will reveal the evidence to us of his glory around us. And that's what John needed. That's what John needed is John just needed a reminder. How many of us need a reminder about who Christ is in our life sometime, right? Right? John needed a reminder, and John prayed the prayer by asking these men to go to Jesus. Even though there's doubt, even though you can see the doubt in the situation, he went to the source, and what did he find at the source? He found the answers that he needed. He found the answers that he needed to have the faith and the confidence in who God is and what God was doing. And then we would read this in verse 28. He says, Jesus says this, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. There is none greater than John. So there is a moment here where Jesus is acknowledging that John is a faithful man, even in his doubt, that you can be faithful to God, even if that faith is small, and be in God's will for your life. That John sought the answers and Jesus gave him the answer. But then we need to understand this. The second half of this verse says this. It says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So what does that mean? That seems very confusing. And there are some spaces, there are some circles of Christianity that would say that this is a proof text for something called purgatory. If you've ever heard of that, basically it's a space in between heaven and hell that you settle in. Because they're like, I mean, if John, right, if John's that great... And there's no one greater than John, but he's, you know, the, the, the least in the kingdom of like, there's got to be some space where us poor, messed up people can be to maybe get as good as John was. But you know what? I, I truly believe that this is actually a proof text for something far more life changing and joy inducing than some waiting area before we go to heaven. You know, John was special as a prophet because like unlike any other prophet, John had the privilege to say he is here instead of he is coming. John got the experience of that. So there was something unique about John on earth that no other prophet before him was able to do. But what I believe this text reminds us about more than that, it's it's reminding us of a beautiful truth when we face doubt. When we face doubt, some beautiful truths that we need to know. The first thing is this, for one, that we have a more complete revelation of who Christ is and what what he has done than John who walked with him. Because what do we have that John didn't have? We have a revelation, a revealed word about who Jesus was. The fact that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, that Jesus empowers His church to grow and to build, and that the church was dying for Him, that the church was, was thriving, that the church was doing. We have so much more, and it kind of piggybacks off of this idea where Jesus would even say to His disciples whenever He was being, when He was ascending into heaven, He said, "Even greater things than this will you do, because I'm going to be with the Lord, because." God knew Jesus knew that the revelation of all that he had done would be more beneficial for us today. And so we would say, well, I feel like if if I walked with Jesus, then that would be more beneficial. And then I would be more faithful. Judas walked with Jesus. Judas did ministry with Jesus. And what did Judas still choose? Judas still chose the wealth of the world over Jesus. If you were to be walking with Jesus today, it would not make your faith any stronger. It didn't make theirs. But God has given us something greater than that. God has given us the full experience of who Christ is and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they did not have. Christ has provided a way for us that is a fuller experience, pointing to us, pointing to the church after Him. And not only that, but also, though John was great, And he was. He was a good man. He still doubted. Still had his struggles. He was not born again under the new covenant of grace like we are. And what do I mean by that? Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, As we may say as a rule that the darkest day is lighter than the brightest night. So, John, though first of his own order, is behind the last of the new or gospel order. The least in the gospel stands on higher ground than the greatest under the law. So what does that mean? The identity that we live in right now is an identity under a new covenant of grace that God has given us through Christ Jesus because we are not bound by the law and its requirements to be righteous before God. Are To be made right before God because in John's day they lived under the covenant of the law where their actions the things they did Those were the things that made them look righteous before man and before God was their actions because of how good They can be by doing the do's and not doing the don'ts by living by this standard that had been laid before them but the identity that we live in where Jesus would say to us and to them that yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he because what he's telling us it doesn't matter. The identity you live in now, even in your doubts, And and hopefully in a moment of doubt, as we come with our doubts, as we come with our questions, that a lot of people would feel like, well, because I have questions, because I have doubts, I don't have a place at Jesus' table, at God's table, where he is telling them here. He says, the least in the kingdom of God is still greater than John, who did things right on earth, who was the prophet that the Old Testament spoke about, who did everything right. Under the covenant of grace, you're still greater than John. Why? Why? Because of the identity you have in Christ Jesus. Because of the, 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 the life you live is not your own anymore. It's the life Christ has given you. It's the life Christ lives for you. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to lead, guide, direct you into all the spaces of life that you live. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life that's what when he writes that when he says that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he even though on earth all the women born um, all the men born by women that he's the greatest among them on earth under the letter of the law he says but listen under the new covenant of grace he says the least the least the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he So think about think about the worst person, you know, think about the worst mistake that's ever been made. If that person comes to grace in Christ Jesus, it says they're greater in the kingdom of God than John because they're not under the covenant of the law anymore. And so when we come with our doubts, when we come with our fears, we don't have to run away from Jesus because we have those, but we can come to him. And even in our sin, even in our little, tiny, itty bitty, young, immature faith, if we come to him, we're still great in the kingdom of God. Because he has purpose. He does not give up. He does not let go of us. He says he holds on to us. And so we still have a place in the work that God is doing. So come to Jesus with your doubts. Because he's going to give us answers. It may not always be the answers we want, but he's going to give us the answers that we need. Because of that new covenant we live under. Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13. I I, I want to encourage you to go back and to read this. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. It says this. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they, will, they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away so what he is telling us is that in Christ Jesus this old way that kept us just out of our reach of who God is and what God is doing has been made obsolete in Christ Jesus because he has given us a better a better covenant a better covenant of grace that as we come with our doubts and as we pray this prayer together fix my sight that maybe you have doubts about who Christ is Pursue those answers in Christ. That maybe you have doubts about how Christ, how God can use you as a parent, as an as a employee, as a, as a husband, as a wife. That you come to him and he will give you answers about how those things go. You may not like it. You may not like the way it lays out. You may not like the things it asks of you. But it's going to be given to us under the context of who we are in Jesus. If you put your faith in him... And the confidence that comes with knowing that it's under this covenant of grace that is not dependent on my ability to keep my side of the bargain, that Christ has already kept my side of the bargain on my behalf, and he has called me to just walk in that, to live in that, to pursue that. And so as the worship team comes, we're going to sing this morning, but I ask us, I ask us to do this this morning as we consider this in our own lives, as we consider this, that you would ask God to reveal to you What are the spaces where my vision of who God is and what God is doing in my life, where my vision is blurred, where I'm not seeing things the way that I should, where maybe I'm like John and I'm even asking myself, I mean, is this the one that I need? Is this the path that I should go? Is this the direction that I should be walking? And for us to understand, first and foremost, it's not wrong to ask those questions. It's not wrong to live a faith that you think about, that you have questions about. The problem is, and where we can get ourselves into issue, is where are we going for those answers? If we're pursuing Christ for those answers, I promise He will give us the answer. He will reveal to us the truth about what it is He has for us and the direction He has us to go. And so the the question for us is that we would ask ourselves, Lord... Where do I need my sight to be fixed? And that we would ask in confidence, Father, fix my sight. Reveal to me those spaces where you want to reveal to me a truer, more detailed, more beautiful image about what it is you have for me and what it is you want me to do. Or maybe it's this this morning. That maybe we would have the courage and confidence because of the working of the Holy Spirit beginning in our lives this morning that you would say that I've pursued those answers in unbelief that I have not and do not believe in who Christ is and what He's done. And if that's the case, if you're able to be honest about that this morning, then I would say begin to pursue Christ for those answers. That if you would put your faith in Him even with the smallest amount of undeveloped faith, mustard seed, undeveloped, He will reveal to us the answers about what He has and what He's doing in our life. He will make that a true revelation for you. So church, can we pray this morning? Bow your heads with me. And let's pray and seek God in this morning. Father God, we thank you. God, we thank you that we don't have to find the answers anywhere else but besides you. Now, Father God, I pray that you would point us towards the resources, point us towards the people where we can go and find the questions to our doubts. Lord, that I pray that you would help us to be prepared for the answers that you may have for us, that they may challenge us, that they may convict us, if they may press against us a little bit to to get rid of some things in our lives that are distracting us or that are holding us back. Father God, let us see the truths about who you are and what you're doing. Father God, and and I pray that if we're here, anyone's here with unbelief this morning, that they could see, they could see that the truest cure for their hurts, for their disappointments, God, for their misdirection, God, for their wondering, even for the sin that has entangled them, God, the cure for that, even if it comes with some doubts, is in you. God, you have the answers for our doubts. You invite our questions. You invite our need for more of who you are and what you have for us. Father God, bless these moments. God, help us to worship you with full hearts this morning, knowing and being confident in who you are and letting it lead, guide, and direct us into the path that you have for us. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church, stand with us and let's worship.